Hello and welcome to the Storytelling with Puck podcast. We will, as always, start with a story. I want to tell you a short story about um, an episode in uh, Newfoundland where I grew up and which I still love and visit often. Uh, has something to do with uh, the beliefs of children and something to do with the religion and a lot to do with the uh, Celtic origins of many of the communities there. So my mother, who is now in her 95th year, was as a young girl out of about 12 or 13, coming home from a dance with her two sisters, walking along a country road to where they lived with her mom and dad, very devout Church of England gentleman that he was, uh, and noticed in the late of a winter evening, fairies dancing on the lawn, not so far from the road where they were walking. My uh, two aunts are quite uh, courageous when things of the spectral world appear. My mom, not so much. And so uh, she wanted to race home and tell their father about the fairies uh, dancing in the meadow. My two aunts wished to explore them, uh, but my mom prevailed and all three young girls raced home. Two of them delighted, one of them in a tizzy about the uh, beings that they had seen, often heard about, but never witnessed, not so far away. Uh, my grandfather, greatly intrigued, said, let's go see. And so much to my mother's disgust, dragged her and the two sisters, both more anxious than her to see what they were sure were um, supernatural beings not so very far from their house. And he dragged all three young girls down across the meadow of a winter's evening, crunching the snow on their way to see what uh, two of the three girls were sure would some be something great. And one of the three was sure would be something awful, probably something that would steal her never to be seen again uh, from the um, from rural Newfoundland. And as they got closer, the hearts of two of the young ladies sank and the hearts of one, my mother, rose when the fairies turned out to be uh, stunted juniper trees on the marsh, dancing back and forth in the wind with the moonlight glinting off the frozen limbs and glitter that was on them. There was an object lesson in there for everybody, but not least uh, my grandfather, who convinced at least for a few moments my um, my mother not to be afraid of things that she had seen or not under and couldn't understand. It's one of a lot of stories that have been passed down to us over the years about encounters with what we would call tokens or ghosts, or um, my grandfather was a sailor, and so so, um, members of ships' companies lost in gale and gale force winds, uh, but that one I always thought was wonderful. Uh, nobody entirely satisfied with the experience, <laughs> except perhaps my granddad. <laughs> at least he, at least he had a good time. Dean, uh, it's a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing it. Now I genuinely cannot wait to find out more about you and we'll dig into that story a little bit more too. But before we do, let's have a quick introduction introduction to the podcast you're listening to storytelling with puck the podcast designed to show the power of stories in life and in business stories connect us on a deeper level which is why we'll be sharing chatting about and feeling the impact they have on every one of us your host stefano is the founder of puck creations and we work with your business to define a clear, consistent, relevant brand which stands out from the crowd. We use that brand to create content that makes your audience think, feel and take action. Visit PugCreations.com to find out more. Before you do that, 
let's ask our very present guest, Dean Oliver, to transfer his knowledge using empathy, experience and skill. We'll dig into the past a little later, but Dean, for now, please tell us a little bit about who you are. Hi, Stefano. Um, I am um, a Newfoundlander, a Canadian by birth and a Newfoundlander by inclination. Uh, my profession is uh, history, and I work uh, happily for the country's uh, largest and most visited museum. And my current capacity is the uh, Senior Director for Research and Chief Curator. Uh, I live in the suburbs of Ottawa in, uh, in Ontario in, in Central Canada. And uh, most of my, my past studies have been in the areas of history and political science. That's where most of my publications uh, reside. But uh, LinkedIn of late has given me the opportunity to write a little fiction and to uh, write a little poetry and uh, just to have some fun with words, which I do professionally every day, but but don't often get to do purely for fun uh, in other venues. And that's how you and I encountered one another. It is indeed, it is. Um, I was uh, very grateful to you for sharing uh, stories in the last maybe two uh, or three stories, storytelling, the last two um, storytelling with Pucks and uh, they're captivating and I've been reading more um, from you recently leading up to this as well and uh, your vast knowledge and the different areas that you work in genuinely blow my mind. Um, so I'm very grateful to have you here uh, speaking to me and answering some of my questions today. Thinking about this, I, I was asking myself, and I might as well ask it here too, where do I even start? <laughs> because as somebody who does what you do and focuses in the areas that you focus on, my question is, everything has a past. Mm-hmm. I read that you put on an exhibition fairly recently about the Afghan war. There's a lot going on about that right now. And there was even more going on about that. The actual war was taking place when when you put on the exhibition. Mm -hmm. So how do you choose what to exhibit, what to research and when to exhibit? Mm. Well, we could we could occupy the rest of the uh, the podcast just <laughs> just with me answering two percent of that question, which is a great one. Uh, well, in uh, the first thing I would say is that there's um, you know there's a process in in our institution and in all institutions for um, uh, picking what stories you do. Uh, choosing stories for museums is um, just like choosing things to go in the collections is amongst the most um, responsible and serious things that one does. You, you, you bear the weight of uh, responsibility for storytelling, regardless of which one you choose. So choose well, um, you know, in private life or as a private university lecturer, you have, let's say you have some luxury in the, um, in the things that you do, but when you, um, when you work in a public institution, as I do, uh, your audience is pretty big, uh, and uh, whatever you do is is subject to comment, uh, critique, occasionally endorsement, almost immediately and in large numbers. And so you wear the you, you feel I wouldn't say you wear you you feel the weight of that uh, responsibility very soberly every day. That said, there's uh, there is a process uh, involving things like the. Um, the capacity of your institution to mount whatever it is that you think you do. Do you have the collections? Do you have the expertise? Is financing available? Uh, when will the, the gallery be ready, etc.? cetera? Uh, you also have, um, you know, questions of public appetite and interest. Uh, I may wish to tell you uh, all about my sneaker collection, but if the public is not particularly interested in Dean's sneakers <laughs> or feet, uh, it's probably not a fit subject for museum exhibitry. I'd, I'd love as, it if you tried it at some point. Yeah, <laughs> as much as you or I would uh, love it. 
Uh, and then there's also questions, and uh, this is uh, part of doing anything um, uh, contemporary or something that touches the, the public heart and mood about, um, you know, just how emotive, uh, how direct, uh, how impactful are the stories that you're telling. Uh, stories dealing right now, of course, with the pandemic would be a very good example. Uh, it's within museums' mandate to talk about such things, but many of the stories that we would wish to tell and that we think about telling are also about communities that were the most impacted, um, you know, communities that were horribly eviscerated. And so there's a, a quotient of empathy and sensitivity in retelling those that would involve perhaps re-traumatizing people, similar for stories of genocide or Holocaust or contemporary war. And Afghanistan, when we did that one about a decade-ish ago, and that was one of those stories. It was an act of war at the time. More than 70 Canadians had died. And um, the responsibility of, um, of telling someone else's narrative and engaging third parties in that narrative is um, both the both the, the privilege and the challenge of working in any aspect of public culture. That's a great answer. You lead me on to another question, which is regarding the narratives, regarding the different points of view that people have that you mentioned. The war in Afghanistan has such human emphasis behind it, such human cost, mm -hmm. and it also has political power on every side and it has and always will i think divide opinion mm -hmm. how do you balance that when you are sharing information and stories and how do you how do you either choose a side or make sure you purposely don't choose a side if that makes sense <laughs> No, it makes perfect. It makes perfect sense. I mean, the glib answers uh, slowly and very carefully, um, <laughs> but there is a you know, there there is a longer answer. Of course, part of it is museological. You know, using the um, or, or if it were, if we weren't a museum, if we, if I were a journalist answering the question, I'd have you know a similar set of, uh, of professional guidelines and barometers to use. Um, but the essence of your question is about um, I think twofold. One is about the possibly conflicting narratives. I mean, wars in particular are the things over which we uh, feel strongly enough that we're prepared to die, um, or some of us are prepared to die, it's no surprise, therefore, that the stories are, you know, visceral, raw, and conflictual. So that's one part of the question. And another part of the question is, you know, how do you tell stories about such things with potentially incomplete or conflicting information? I believe this, you believe that. If uh, you and I both uh, witness an accident on a street corner, the police interview us both because we've seen it differently, understand it differently, uh, think there are different causes of it, and the more complex the human endeavor, uh, the more perspectives there are likely to be brought to bear on it. And so the, the, there is a very simple answer to the question is you try to find uh, uh, as many perspectives on the event as close to the event itself so that you form an holistic picture of it, uh, even though many of those stories may be conflictual, uh, overlapping, uh, incomplete, uh, and then you deploy professional expertise, uh, storytellers, uh, you know, exhibit builders, interpreters, educators, um, oral history, oral historians, or uh, people skilled in oral history technique to begin to put together the story as a bit of a mosaic to recreate it in real time. Uh, and all of that overlain with uh, what is perhaps the most difficult thing of all is to take stories that may be vastly dissimilar uh, in terms of um, what your or my lived experience might be and make them accessible uh, physically, emotionally, and intellectually to people who've never lived them. 
Uh, I've never been there. Uh, I never survived a, a concentration camp or lived in one, but I've done exhibitions on the Holocaust. I've never been to Rwanda, but I've talked about that. Uh, I have never been an Indigenous person in Canada or an interned Ukrainian in wartime. But we've told stories about all of those things. Um, and then you both sample in advance what people's uh, knowledge and expectations are and uh, uh, potential touch points, opportunities uh, as you're building the storyline or the narrative. Uh, and then you talk to them uh, fairly rigorously and relentlessly both throughout and afterward uh, to see how your story was received. And uh, it's always possible. Uh, sometimes you, you don't know till it happens, you know, that you lay an egg, that you've done something insensitive or wrong or incomplete. And you know, part of the job of uh, any public cultural figure is to is to realize with some humility uh, that this is going to be true more often than not, uh, certainly more often than you'd like. Uh, and part of the reason that museums, all museums, even the biggest, are you know works in progress is that all of these stories, even the oldest ones, if you think of museums based on archaeology, uh, anthropology, ethnology, are always changing. Knowledge is always changing. And so we, we make uh, good educated guesses about what we collect and how inclusive we think the story is, um, but in all sorts of ways, academically, practically, technologically, the, um, the screens that we print on or the spaces that we fill are always, are always changing. Uh, for us, uh, perhaps one of the more you know, dramatic, helpful and positive ones in recent years, uh, for us, I, I mean, um, museums of history, uh, is how we treat of the stories of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a massive uh, storytelling change, a massive uh, cultural change, uh, uh, all of it long overdue, most of it positive and all of it very challenging, challenging and difficult. Let's talk about that a bit more, actually, because that is, um, as you say, an incredibly raw and emotive subject right now. Mm -hmm. But it's, a, it's such an important one, too. Um, I read something you wrote about learning history at school and the kind of textbooks that you're given and the kind of ideas that you're given at school, mm. the, the the cliche with uh, a semblance of truth um, idea that history is written by the victor. Mm -hmm. And that seems <laughs> to pass through the school to a degree. And you recommended a book, which I've never read and I've now forgotten the name of, um, which is... Lies My Teacher Told Me. Lies My Teacher Told Me. Um, James Lawn. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to pick that up and read it because it sounds <laughs> it sounds extremely um, interesting and, and also pertinent to what we're talking about now. Because I think that relationship to the subject of Indigenous people and the idea of what we're taught and the idea of the truth... I think differs hugely. And how do you approach making sure that you're looking for the truth? I mean, you've kind of explained that with your previous answer, but at this moment, what are you doing specifically with this subject area? Um, also, a very good question. Uh, the, the, I mean, I, I would tweak very slightly, I think, uh, Stefano, the, uh, you know, the answer, the kind of tongue in cheek answer, history written by the victors. I think more. Um, that's certainly true of um, histories of conflict. I think you know we do a very good job of writing the enemy out of existence and <laughs> largely out of existence, and assuming everything we did was you know from high-minded motives and did nothing wrong, never committed a war crime. Sometimes that's true, but often it's not. Um, but I think generally speaking, history is written by the powerful, 
and and the act of I mean, as you very well know, the act of recording stories is an exercise of power, and so uh, you know you do it in part to um, to excuse your own behavior in real time. Uh, you know, we uh, we launched this invasion, uh, we created this public policy, uh, we wrote these books, et cetera, et cetera, and thank God we did. Look how wonderful we were. But that magnified, you know, o- over time uh, through the presence of um, of colonial powers, uh, you know, and the role in in the fates of indigenous societies it becomes the historical record, which is the one that, uh, unfortunately, is the one that you know you and I probably remember with the school texts with the pink faces in the maps, you know, front and back. Thank God for the British Empire was essentially the case, and the same would have been true if you're in France or Germany or any place else. So the you know the the challenge is to uh, of course you know it was an historical fact that these empires did what they did, went where they went, fought where they fought, um, colonized and victimized, other things they did too, you know trade and um, educational institutions they created. But the challenge is to kind of get past that, that narrative or any narrative, to find out what events look like uh, on the ground amongst the people who live those pasts. And therein, very, you know, very quickly, um, if you can create enough bandwidth and time to do uh, real research, work with communities, talk, gather stories, interpret them, uh, very quickly, of course, different stories, plural, begin to emerge. Um, you know, the uniqueness of the, you know, 600 or so ethno- indigenous ethnocultural communities in Canada, 600 plus narratives that uh, contradict in almost every particular, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the narrative of, uh, well, nothing nothing was here and then the French came and then the English came and conquered the French. Bob's your uncle, you have Canada. Uh, and so the, the complexity and richness of those narratives are, are ones which uh, only now and, and quite incompletely, I think, are, are being recognized by um, educational institutions, uh, post-secondary and below, by the political narrative of Canada, certainly by the social policy and other narrative. And the same is true, you know, multiplied across the full range and complexity of polities everywhere. But uh, history, is a, history is a process of um, of the justification of the powerful. I don't know what other way to say it. Uh, and, you know, when you when you read the history of the Second World War, uh, any diff- it's no different than the history of the Second Afghan War, the Second South African War. Uh, you'll find similar narratives emerging and oftentimes uh, really courageous um, scholars, uh, popularizers, journalists or others, uh, social activists, um, you know, fighting, clawing, struggling to allow those other narratives to emerge. It can be really, really difficult for all sorts of reasons, not least of them financial and political, for those stories to gain purchase. And so part of the job of, uh, I don't mean to talk our whole time about being in a, in a public culture, but, you know, but part of the job of public culture is to seize those moments, find those opportunities, and then amplify those narratives a little bit so that they find purchase in the national collections or local collections and publications, et cetera, that whereas uh, in the past they they might not have done so so easily. And of course, a portion of that is making sure that you surround yourself with people who have a better ear for these things than you do. I mean, I joke sometimes that, uh, you know, the only good thing I hope to leave behind is better people than me. Uh, in, in museums and you know they'll 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 do the things that maybe if I'm lucky on my best day I'll have imagined but they will have changed and reshaped narratives in ways that my generation can't and probably wouldn't have had the credibility to even if we tried you started that answer talking about stories of the powerful and I, I completely agree by the way um not that I have any authority on the subject so, but um in a sense, it, it can show the 
the way that stories can be negatively used sometimes to create a narrative that leads us to believe things that are supporting one mm. particular group or type of people, etc. Mm -hmm. And it could almost make us think, oh, stories are a bad thing because they can manipulate us um, mm -hmm. <laughs> to a degree. Now, that would go against everything that we believe in because to us, mm -hmm. stories are incredibly powerful for almost the exact same reason, because of the mm -hmm. emotion, the connection that you can have, the way that you can grasp somebody's attention, not by throwing facts and figures at them, but by grabbing their heart and saying something that truly matters. What I loved is by the end of your answer, I believe you had explained that through your story as well, because the way that I saw it was that part of the importance of what you're doing and what the future generations are doing to people who, as you say, have an insight that we haven't even thought about yet. But what, what, what you're doing is you're sharing the opposite stories, the stories that don't get to be heard and so that they can connect on an emotional level. Because if we just shared facts and figures, as is often the case, if we just say, or well, have a look at the number of indigenous people who have X, have a look at the number of wars that have happened because of Y, and don't share stories, sometimes I think it can very easily go over our heads and we completely ignore it. It's a very long way of getting to my question. But my question is, what are the importance of stories in what you do? and how you spread the message as opposed to just putting facts, figures, etc. They are, um, it would be impossible to underestimate uh, the, the weight, impact and utility of stories. They have to be chosen um, carefully, balanced one against the other, situated, you know, appropriately against other things, uh, you know, evidence, experience, uh, you know, uh, countervailing opinion, etc. But the, you know, the essence of, um, I mean, you're, you're describing the essence of great literature and, you know, the, and the essence of that is to take uh, highly dissimilar, perhaps even completely foreign subjects, uh, you know, universes that never existed, uh, creatures that never walked, stories that you've never lived and make it impactful and meaningful and intelligible to people who, of course, never have, never will experience these things. And so part of the, um, you know, the essence of good historical storytelling or political storytelling or, or even journalism is to take a story that transcends these things, allows you to, um, to leap laterally from subject to subject, time to time, you know, country to country, gender to gender, and make it meaningful for uh, as many people as possible within within the audience. And so this is, um, wouldn't I don't know that uh, in museological uh, terms, this is quite a revolution, but it, it is, it certainly moves that way, that we're moving from, um, uh, you know, as a sector from monologic conversations where we tell you, you know, the uh, 1066 and all that, um, <laughs> to engaging you with with stories about people who, uh, you know, but for the grace of God were just like you, and who encountered things like fear or grief, or who did things that were heroic or cowardly, uh, that had lived lives that that were interesting um, and famous or interesting and dull and that these stories had value and from these in these value in these values in these things you can see your own human existence 
And so uh, that, I mean, that's the essence of good literature. You know, when, when uh, Tolstoy says uh, every happy family is the same, but unhappy families are each unique in their own ways, you think, yes, <laughs> I, I get it. It doesn't matter what follows. Um, uh, <laughs> but you, you, you mean, there's, a, there's an insight into the human condition, you know, the, the uniqueness and the idiosyncrasy of, uh, of sadness or hunger or grief. And that's what good storytelling, even in history, does. It's why, you know, you or I might not know the first thing about uh, British politics, but if we pick up the a really good biography of someone who was impactful, whether activist or a member of parliament or prime minister, we can read it with profit and, and find in the story and the ways in which they're trotted out, uh, lessons to live by, things to mark or to marvel at or laugh with. Uh, you know, it's why the likes of, you know, the David Lodges of the world will be around long after the Dean Olivers because they've taken these stories and made them, just made them timeless. And, you know, I, I don't need to be in the British Museum in the 1950s to understand exactly what the British <laughs> Museum is falling down is all about. If we're immersing in these stories, if we're taking them in, and if we're becoming part of the narrative as we're reading it of these great politicians of these great activists etc is there a lesson in how we absorb stories in what we allow ourselves to get caught up in i guess um sometimes it's not about allowing ourselves i guess it just happens mm -hmm. and how we then decompose them and understand bias a little bit better in the way that you were talking about you have to do and journalists have to do what about as a consumer of these things is there a is there a good way to absorb stories especially if it's stories that are touching <laughs> on fact and fiction i feel like there might not be an answer to this but uh, i thought i'd ask well we'll give dean some time to think about that while we reflect on the history of this podcast episode a little we've been listening to the historian museum curator, storyteller, and all-around good man, Dean Oliver, reflect on choosing the right exhibits, the importance of stories in history, and how to best tell those stories. Before the end of this episode, which will as always conclude with a story from Puck Creations, we'll find out about the importance of mission, fairies, and the best place to find Dean should you need him. Okay. Let's see if Dean has an answer to the question of absorbing stories. Well, there, there, there may be there, there may be many answers. I'm not sure I have any of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's the um, I think it was uh, Nicholas Basbanes who, who who the title of whose book was you know every book is reader, and so I, I think there's a little bit of that. There's a there's a, a very high level of um, of, uh, of, uh, of uniqueness that you know every, every exchange between the story and the and the story consumer is a little bit different, is a little too generous. Um, but I think there are you know lessons for in it for you know how we might read, how we might consume, and for those of us who might um, want to assist in people reading or consuming or encountering. Um, but that responsibility, I think, is perhaps a little bigger than just the storyteller. It resides in other areas. One of them being full-on education. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, if if you talk to people about the way in which. Um, experience, whether past or contemporary experience is conveyed and the lessons of that conveyance, I think there's a fairly general sense, whether it's true or not, I'm slightly more dubious about, but fairly, fairly general sense that um, there's something missing 
in that uh, educational connection between, you know, the, the, the richness and marvelousness of the human world as it has existed over time or the, or the non-human world and how we encounter it in educational settings. So I, I, this may be a prejudice on my part, but I think the gap between possibility and, uh, and actuality is greatest in the educational realm, maybe, and, and certainly greater, than, I think, than it is in the, the literary form, probably greater than it is in poetry, and I also think probably greater than it is in, in, the cons in, in consuming of public culture. But, but from our perspective, the storytelling perspective, I mean, there's all, all kinds of uh, lessons and guideposts in there. They're constantly changing. Um, you know, one of the biggest changes would be what, uh, what uh, alterations have been wrought by the, electron the electronic world. Uh, both practically in sense of behavior, uh, you know, how you encounter information now is likely not how your dad uh, encountered information, not how your granddad encountered it, uh, but perhaps also even uh, physiologically. And so there's been a lot written on how the human mind is gradually remapping itself into something that uh, looks vastly different than what even our more recent ancestors would have had to say. And some of this filters into how we tell stories, arranged words, text lengths, uh, use of, uh, in, you know, um, uh, IT in the you know way we tell stories, the the um, arrival of the ebook. So the, I mean the gaps I think are great in some areas, um, all kinds of vistas of opportunity in others. But I guess I can only speak for you know how we go about the telling of them at the, at the moment. Uh, we are as a minor side, Stefano. We're blessed with uh, in our organization with a full time person who uh, studies things um, crudely defined as visitor uh, experience, and essentially she, she, at a very sophisticated level she surveys things like uh, attitudes, opinions, reactions. Et cetera. And so we have a kind of constant stream of information coming to us through her and her networks and what's called visitor studies uh, of how these things are, are, are changing and morphing and how they may be different even from subject to subject. Um, and so if you think of a nature museum and the kinds of things that are motivating the people who would want to, you know, explore the flora and fauna of the world and uh, animal habitat, et cetera, versus those who perhaps are more motivated by uh, human stories of a human migration or conflict or poverty, et cetera. And even there, you know, within the, the same arc of memory and understanding, perhaps we, even within the same family group of visitors, there are different uh, gaps to be explored and, and opportunities created. It, it is... Um, it's fascinating in our work, and if I look at a slightly longer perspective, say, you know, 25 to 50 years, I can see that there have been massive changes uh, in how stories are thought about, chosen, and, and presented, whether or not the, those changes are fast enough to meet the kind of quickening change in pace of uh, visitor interest and public understanding, I think the, the, the jury may still be out on that. Uh, we're, we're still very much a kind of transformative work in progress. I think you've explained that really well, and I think um, you answered it better than I expected you would be able to. To be honest, because I, uh, that's not a reflection on you, more a reflection on the question. That it's uh, that, you see, that, if you set your expectations low, Stefano, that'd be great. <laughs> if I just peek my eyes above the parapet, that's victory. I, I, uh, I assure you, my my, uh, my expectations are high, so I apologise, but. Uh, <laughs> But it's fascinating that you have um, you have somebody assessing the people who are almost assessing you. <laughs> oh yes, very much so. Um, uh, but, but it's also really important. It's something that happens in the online world all the time. There's yeah. a lot of automatic ways of assessing analytics. That's that's how 
a lot of these companies are growing is they are yeah. seeing what users are doing. It's the user interface. But to have a real life version of that um, it, it is extremely important, I think, to be able to, to gather an understanding. But it leads me to a different question because sometimes with the analytics of a user interface online the reason that they're doing this is to find the best possible way to make profit out of people with the work that you do at the museum i read something um, that you wrote about when you first got into the industry the idea of getting into it was just for a job it wasn't necessarily to do anything spectacular but Tell me a little bit more about how, maybe you could share a story actually about how and why that motivation changed and now what the importance of mission is mm -hmm. in museums and further afield. Sure. I, I, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about that. I, I think you're referring to a few paragraphs that I wrote in the um, one, one of my online posts. It might even be in my profile on LinkedIn. Um, and, you're, and I was being quite honest, I had a, a few job offers uh, 20, 24 years ago now, and the, and the one that promised the speediest path to a mortgage loan uh, was a full-time employment for the government of Canada. And so uh, that was the that was the other paths were not taken, and that was the one that was taken. And so I, I really didn't have much sense of a um, of museums having a mission at all, let alone that they would have some kind of a socially transformative mission. You know, something that they were endeavoring to do in the in the body public. Um, had a you know a sense, of course, that um, you know you're unlikely to find uh, agricultural displays in a war museum. You're unlikely to find uh, war displays in an agricultural museum, and that you know they would be limited. By their by their collections, perhaps by their clientele, and that certain museums had um, types of museums rather, um, you know, had had very definite interest. If you went to a science museum, chances are people wanted to teach you something about science and so on and so forth. Um, but an old uh, a colleague of mine, who I uh, guy's name was Andy Masick, he's I think still head of the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh. Um, gave us a presentation in a course I attended uh, about, you know, what's the definition of success? This is a, a corporate problem uh, as much as it is a museum or any other kind of problem. Uh, you know, what are you trying to do and, and how do you know when you've done it? Uh, which is a different way, slightly different way of asking, you know, what does victory look like? Uh, and um, uh, Andy's approach to that was to try to find out, you know, what, what might make a museum great. And so uh, his answer to the question after much study and a fair bit of travel was that, uh, you know, the, the uniqueness of, um, of the cultural proposition is that such institutions have the opportunity to change your life. Uh, and that, that they, they, they reach, they can reach when done well, deeply enough into your psyche, into your sense of, of uh, self-righteousness and uh, purpose and existence to change you in fundamental and probably positive ways. Of course, the crawler is also true if they're done badly or if they're put to a nefarious purpose, you know, they may, may make something else out of you. But, but the notion that a cultural institution could be impactful enough to change lives on a, on a meta level uh, really was uh, kind of uh, at first uh, kind of transfixative for me and then and then transformative. And I saw uh, much of the work that I've done uh, later, uh, some of it I think probably pretty um, pretty boisterous and poorly poorly received. Some of it I think quite uh, nuanced and and uh, and um, and capable and perhaps well received. 
as being about that mission, a, a little bit of a, of a crusader ethos, I think, seeped into me after Andy's, um, you know, excellent uh, presentation, and, and it stayed there and it grew. And so when I was um, working in the War Museum for many years, part of the mission was to um, simply to address people on a level not of military technicality or or arcana about the uh, you know the throw weight of ballistic missiles or the uh, you know the caliber of various uh, weapons, but to talk to them about the way this blight of organized human conflict had impacted their lives, whether they uh, knew it when they walked into the museum or even cared very much didn't really matter. We felt our mission was to talk to them about these um, difficult, horrible things and how they impacted them positively, negatively personally, regionally, and in all other ways that we could imagine. And also to make that encounter a, a safe space for people who didn't think very much about military history at all, probably didn't care very much about the people who made it, including me. And so things like, uh, you know, the connection of a military past to things like public policy or housing or pensions or disability reform, uh, the uh, treatment of indigenous peoples or the engagement of, uh, of minorities and all these stories were things that we explored. And then I had the privilege some years later of coming over to the uh, Museum of History where amongst other things, um, that one of the challenges was to make sure that the stories we were telling about what was quote unquote Canada included the full breadth, depth and range of people who lived here. And, you know, first and foremost in that narrative, even though, you know, my predecessors had just done a simply wonderful job of designing galleries for Indigenous peoples, was to make sure that there weren't two or three uh, parallel but separate narratives uh, in the museum. There was there was there was one, but it was a rich one, intertwined, conflictual, combative, difficult to at points to encounter. Uh, but that this all of it is is what makes you, and you, you're not always going to like what you see. What it's like you know you look at the mirror and you look in the mirror in the morning, your hair's out of place and you need to shave. Uh, you know countries are a little bit like that. Polities are a little bit like that. You, you you either face down honestly who you are and what you've been, or you're just deluding yourself. Uh, and so that was a little, that has been still is a, a bit of the a bit of the crusade, um, you know. And I I'm very very fortunate. I mean I I work with uh, in my immediate division 35 or 40 of the smartest people on earth, and uh, three or four hundred more in, in the museum more broadly. And we engage with the communities from coast to coast to coast. And uh, and believe you and me, if you don't know the answer to something, you put it on a wall in the museum. <laughs> Someone tells you what the answer was, <laughs> but five minutes after it goes up. But but that's how we that's how I guess I encountered mission that there was something that museums could do that was bigger than the walls that extended beyond the walls that wasn't just about the collections or the objects we held or the text that we wrote. It had something to do with um, in in particular perhaps and this may be a presentist um, prejudice, but in particular I think in a world. Uh, marked by change and uncertainty, kind of bifurcation and divisions of identity, um, you know, conflicts over what is, what's real, fake news. There was something about the museum um, mission that was authentic and real. And if done well, uh, it could quite uh, sensitively and usefully ex expose to people the multiplicity of their identity, the, the ways in which different things interacted in it. It's not as stupid as saying, you know, um, uh, you know, we're all everybody and everybody is us. It's not quite that. It's that the nature of your existence is informed by a lot of things that you didn't know, but it's all relevant to you. And you know what? Much of it, if we tell the stories well, it should be interesting to you. And we find it is. I, 
I, I'm almost in love with that mission. Um, it's uh, it, it's so powerful. At the same time, I sometimes would wonder if I were doing what you do, if I would struggle with it slightly because of the present world and things that are going on. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get to a point where you feel like A, it's cutting through and is being the success you want it to be or B, that it's completely failing and you're not managing to do what you want to do with your mission? Oh, <laughs> several times an hour, I think, <laughs> is, the, is the honest answer. And, and then sometimes we don't have, sometimes we don't have to uh, wor- worry about we're being, whether we're being too morose about it. The visitor studies will show us, you know, that we laid an egg. Uh, but that's uh, slightly off, off, off uh, beam of your question. And so, no, we, we do think about that. Um, we try to think about, um, you know, as a public, in our case, federal institution, there are some lines that we have to be very careful that we don't cross. So we're not a, um, you know, we don't make the foreign policy of the government of Canada. We don't make its health policy. We don't uh, decide on, uh, you know, immigration levels and these things. And we are deeply respectful of the democratic uh, elective process, both uh, locally, provincially and federally. And so one of the hard lines for us not to cross is uh, trans- transgressing on the rights and privileges of those who make policy of any kind, anywhere, uh, at any elective level of government. And so part of the challenge in, in telling stories that are, are meaningful and contemporary in terms of their of their impact and relevance is to make sure that we don't trans, while we remain true to the factors, factors like authenticity, representativeness, uh, honesty, we don't transgress on the pr- privileges and prerogatives of others. Sometimes, uh, of course, there, there are moments where you'd like to press send on the email. <laughs> there's, a, there's a wonderful meme that has just crossed the transom. You think that would look just absolutely smashing uh, as, the, as the lead graphic on the exhibition. Uh, there's, a, you know, there's a cute uh, bio or op-ed that has been written that you think would be, would be great. But no, there are, there are some boundaries about what you do. And uh, there are all kinds of times when we think uh, maybe we've missed an opportunity by virtue of the, uh, you know, the, the boundaries that as an, a kind of um, a public cultural institution or, or just yourself as a writer that uh, you wish to do. As, as, a private, as private scholars, many of us have, um, have alternate lives. They, uh, they connect with work in museums, of course, at certain points. You know, if I'm writing something for the museum, as I was today, I'm a museum employee. If I'm uh, writing a story for you, that's normally done on uh, Saturday or Sunday morning over coffee. And in those moments, I'm not a museum employee. But there's a zone in between. If I write for an academic press or a journal or if I'm doing a, you know, a media interview on a subject on which I happen to have some minimal expertise, there's a gray area in there where there's a certain self-policing. Um, in the realm of, um, I, I comment quite often publicly on questions of public heritage, public culture, um, but I don't, uh, I'm not the Minister of uh, Canadian Heritage, and I don't comment on his or her prerogatives, uh, nor do I consent to do interviews on the decisions that the Government of Canada has made in these areas that would be grossly I- inappropriate, uh, even though sometimes sometimes you're happy that they're inappropriate because you can <laughs> dodge the bullet of the interview, and, <laughs> and other times you think, oh my God, give me some leash, wouldn't I love to talk about that? Uh-huh. Uh, but but in the end, one hopes that wisdom prevails and, and you understand that some things are Caesar's and some things are not. That's well said. And I take from all of that that with all of the the hourly <laughs> the hourly worries of whether your 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 mission is is cutting through because of the boundaries, 
that actually the one thing that seems to keep on being processed is that you have to keep going with what you're doing even within the boundaries that may come at you that's you didn't actually say that but that's kind of what i was taking from from some of what you said there that you're you know that you can't step on certain areas you also are quite glad that you sometimes can't step into certain areas (laughs) Um, but with all of that being said as long as you are still cutting through to the people that you want to cut through to and making sure that people are learning the lessons however hard they may be of what you are trying to teach through the museums then actually it's still worth it even if some things are a little bit restricted this Oh heavens yes, yeah, yeah. heavens yes. The, I mean the um, the uh, uh, I don't want to overstate the case. I mean, the, the shackles on Gulliver are fairly minimal and easily broken, and so the uh, the kinds of things and the moments uh, in which those kinds of things can uh, are best not spoken about are very minimal. I mean the 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 rest of the vastness of human history is open to us for comment. Uh, Almost all of it, provided we started out talking about how stories get selected. And so, you know, provided we have bandwidth and expertise and collections and opportunity and the stories are meaningful and and relevant to our audience and important enough for us to risk, uh, to wish to invest in, all those things are possible. And so the kind of galaxy of possibility is is, is pretty vast. Uh, The number of things that, um, you know, wisdom um, in policy and experience would guide us, guard us against. It's pretty narrow, and uh, most days not not particularly uh, encumbering one way or the other. Uh, there are, of course, as I you know, mentioned, moments where you think, "Well, oh, yes, give me a microphone." Um, but uh, it, it's some, and then even then, you have to think, "Well, God, thank God, thank God, I didn't have the microphone because I would have, probably would have spouted nonsense." But the other things all remain true, uh, Stefano. The, the opportunities are fairly limitless, and we have. Um, you know, whether whether as individual writers on the on the scholarly side of the staff or as a staff employees, you know, collectively, um, we have I think something like four million objects in the collections of our museum, and about uh, thirty five or forty full time uh, storytellers, and uh, we're you know we're blessed with some millions of dollars that we can spend on these things, in addition to uh, you know electronic access, uh, public programs, and things. So the the opportunities far outweigh the uh, the restrictions, which are pretty pretty minimal. I I would say you know personally for me these were these were important things because before I came to the museum, uh, other things. Uh, intruded, but before I came to the museum, I was um, probably a better known public figure in the area of um, defense and security studies than I was in the area of history. And so uh, my my bread and butter was, uh, you know, talking to governments about wars I thought they should start, wars I thought they should get out of. <laughs> Thankfully, nobody listened to me on either front. Uh, but, uh, but, but those were the kinds of things I talked about. I had a fairly uh, active and regular media persona, loved that kind of business, and uh, very gradually, um, moved away from some of those things and um, transformed some of them into speaking about things like commemoration, heritage, uh, Remembrance Day. I've done uh, live Remembrance Day services for about 25 or 30 years. And so those things began to re- replace the others and, and the opportunities and um, and, and feedback and, and personal validation in those things were, were at least as great, if not a darn sight greater uh, than the things that I had done before public service. So... To, to follow on from to follow on from that slightly and you talked about um you talked about writing 
for personal joy as well um and you talked mm. about that at the very beginning and that's the the story that you started with about fairies and <laughs> the, mm. the, the 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 family links and the, the the one person in the family your grandfather who <laughs> who got some joy out of that um how much time do you get to spend on those personal indulgences as well and that that love of writing in in that form uh, not as much as I'd like, but 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 more than um, more than in past years, and so uh, only in the last uh, two or three years, uh, you know, as um, you know, one's mortality clock ticks on, um, and uh, you know, retirement from from active public service looms. I've spent a little bit more time, um, mostly ransacking uh, and plagiarizing the you know the memories and stories of my parents and grandparents, <laughs> uh, and you and using some of those you know which are just so all true, every word of it all true, and and so lovely, and then using that as a kind of way to explore uh, kind of my pride in being from Newfoundland and the the the, the wonder of growing up there. You know, I lived in a city, but the wilderness was all around and the world was filled with stories of uh, might and magic. And, uh, you know, uh, Camelot was was read to us aloud. And, uh, you know, we camped every weekend and went trout fishing every every chance. Uh, every time it wasn't raining, we were by the side of a pond. So all of those stories informed things. And I, you know, found some joy in writing a little bit of poetry. Um, I peck away uh, from time to time at uh, two small novels that one of these days, uh, the good Lord willing, may or may not be published. And if they're not, I don't care much. Uh, they're just fun to do, uh, mm-hmm. and I enjoy doing it. But I, I've always been attracted uh, in my work, as as in private life, I've always been attracted to the kind of manipulation of words and how words can express ideas. Sometimes you uh, you find the idea in the words, and, and other times, I suppose, the idea breeds the words. And that gives me great joy. Uh, I, I like editing uh, as a job. And sometimes I guess my colleagues would say I like editing a little too much. <laughs> the, the, the whole, the whole, uh, the whole page is red. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can't use red. We can't use red. Red is, uh, you know, red, red is an offensive color. So it's purple okay. Or, okay. Or, some, or some other mauve or some other more purple color. But I do enjoy that. It gives me, it gives me great joy. And, um, and regardless of period or subject, when I, when I encounter that brilliance in others, I'm just, so in awe of the capacity of uh, of other writers uh, to do this you know there's um there's a well, he's it's at finton o'toole i think is he's uh, an irish writer he writes quite frequently in uh, some of the north american magazines but he also writes in the in the uh, in the british isles just an absolutely marvelous marvelous writer you know i i never have read the stories of the uh, of the tudor period uh, you know if not for the marvelous lady who wrote the tr- trilogy on a previously unknown uh, unknown character to me uh, you know, I listened to the uh, to the podcasts of one of your Roman historians, uh, who did, Mary Beard, uh, who was just absolutely magical. I, I tell you a small story. I um, I, I went uh, a colleague and I went to the Northwest Territories of Canada, which is a gorgeous place, but very cold. <laughs> we, we went there one winter for a series of meetings with uh, with you know colleagues, and they couldn't make it because of the nature of um, nature of the weather. And so we were stuck in in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories for several days. Uh, we toured everything that was to be toured, saw every public institution that was to be done. But I had one of Mary Baird's uh, books with me. And so while I was waiting in a parking lot one night at uh, three in the morning, looking for the Northern Lights, which never appeared, I finished reading 
uh, <laughs> Professor Baird's book. And so later on, I wrote, I, you know, very, uh, very pres presumptuously wrote her an email to say, hi, Professor Baird, you don't know me, but I met you in a parking lot in Illinois from the Northwest Territories. And she, was very, <laughs> she, was, she was very kind enough to have written back. Oh, wow. Said, you know, how wonderful. I've, I've never received a note like this again. She was probably thinking, doom coffin. I might never receive, but I did write to her. <laughs> And, you know, I'm a 21st century Canadian standing in a parking lot in the Northwest Territories, just being thrilled by the magical prose of this woman uh, writing about a world, you know, 2000 years before her own. And so when I when I encounter these things, I just uh, seize on them like grim death, grim death or just absolutely, you know, they elate me and thrill me and uh, let me think that there's, um, you know, possibilities in my work or any work that I've only yet begun to explore. Fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. Now, I haven't warned you about this, so I will completely accept if the answer is no, um, because it only just came to me to ask. You mentioned poetry. Is there a piece that you have that you would like to recite? Uh, no. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> there are, I, I have committed, I've written, I've written several, uh, and uh, in one or two cases, they were um, just kind of uh, tossed off in response to um, uh, in, in response to competitions like your own or invitations like their own. And so uh, they exist. Uh, I don't even think I have hard copies of them. Uh, oh, they, wow. they exist in the ether, uh, Stefano, somewhere in, in on LinkedIn, which I'm sure you could find. But no, I, I've committed none of them to memory at all. Um, what, there are one or two that um, uh, I do have one or two in, in memory that I wrote for my wife. Uh, but uh, those will remain between you. Therefore, they're your wife. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I understand that. Um, it, it was worth asking, but I, I, I knew it was. There was definitely a risk of the of, of no <laughs> being the answer to that. So it's completely fair enough. Yep. But maybe you can uh, maybe you can share some more when we come to the next uh, storytelling with Puck. Well, initiative. perhaps. Perhaps I, I, I peck away at uh, song lyrics from time to time too, but uh, oh, I, I, at risk of shame, at risk of shaming us all, I won't repeat those either. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll we'll hold back for now. We'll hold back for now. But uh, I look forward to when the confidence comes to us here in a future <laughs> at a future Fair moment. <laughs> um, now, one last thing, I. Uh, uh, I should probably be quite ashamed and apologise because I feel like I may not have given you your proper title. I read that you have a knighthood uh, yeah <laughs> yes but it, it's it's not british <laughs> okay yeah I, I do i was knighted uh, about a decade or so ago by the government of the netherlands uh, that's where um, i that's where i live yeah yeah so the uh, so queen beatrix uh, knighted me for a service to society in something called the uh, the order of orange nassau and uh, which was a great honor and uh, you know a reflection of um, I wish I could say it was of my personal endeavors, but you know, a reflection of the work of me and my teams over the years, mostly on the subject of uh, the involvement of the Netherlands in World War II, and how uh, you know Canadian forces and other Allied forces liberated the country. So you know, over the years, we've done many exhibits on that subject, and uh, you know, I've visited numerous times, and the uh, that uh, nominations to the order are made by uh, the individual ambassadors of the of the uh, Dutch Crown and. I was very fortunate that the ambassador of the day nominated me. The government, the queen agreed. And so I, I, do, I do hold that knighthood, yes. But it, as far as I know, it comes with a no honorific. And if I'm being brutally honest, there's a set of instructions that come with the honking metal that goes with it. But the instructions are in Dutch. 
And so I, <laughs> I, I hope I hope in a soon, Stefano, that I'm I'm wearing the ribbon in the right way at the right times, and that the medal hangs at the right angle from the right lapel. Uh, but I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's such thing as Google Translate, right? <laughs> it's just one of these days. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I love that you've never investigated it, but um, I, I mean, what an honor. It's fantastic. And I know you were being very, uh, very humble there. And um, that's that's a nice thing to do. But you did lead those teams. So it's thoroughly deserved. And, and well, well thank done. you very much. A, a great achievement. Um, everything we've talked about today has been fascinating. Uh, I, I wish that um, we could go on for hours because there's so many more subject areas that I would love to cover. Um, uh, but for the sake of the listeners, I do try and keep it to <laughs> roughly an hour <laughs> when we're doing these podcasts. Um, so it's been such a pleasure um, having you with us. If, if people would like to find out more about you, to chat with you, um, to uh, potentially get to see some of those uh, poems when you decide to release them, <laughs> where, where, can, uh, where can you be found? The um, the easiest way to find me is probably my LinkedIn profile. So it'd be Dean F. Oliver. So you can find me there. And uh, if for for um, if for any reason you want to contact me for a professional purpose, it's uh, Dean dot Oliver at historymuseum.ca. But most of what you need okay. to know about me is on the LinkedIn site. Okay, fantastic. Um, I will make sure that we get all of that onto the show notes as well. Uh, we will, as always, finish this episode with a story from Puck Creations. But before we do, Sir Dean Oliver, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a genuine pleasure. Uh, my pleasure too. Thank you so much, Stefano. I like the way the day looks at night. I don't mind the drinking. I quite like the lights. I don't mind the clinking. I could do without the fights. I don't mind the shouting. I enjoy a post-night bite. But I much prefer the way the day looks at night. You can keep your late-night bars, your dancing in the clubs. You can keep your hospital visits for the ones who drink too much. You can keep your curbside stumbles. You can keep your prison bars. I just want to see the day as it's lit up by the stars. For I much prefer the way the day looks at night, the tram lines without trams, the shops without a soul in sight, the glint of the moon as it shines up from the canal, Big Ben, the Colosseum, the majestic Taj Mahal, when there's nothing and no one but me and my mind, when the feelings inside me are easier to find. So keep your times the way they're meant to be. I'll see what I see, the way I like to see. And you'll never convince me, try as you might. For I love the way the day looks at night. You've just been listening to the Storytelling with Pug podcast. We'll be back very soon, so make sure you subscribe and catch up on any of the episodes you've missed.